0: Well, we want to say welcome today. We are beginning a brand new series in our church. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be going through why Jesus hates religion. And that may be an awkward title, but I think Easter is probably the greatest illustration of why he hates religion, because it was religion that put him on the cross. And so through this series, we want to kind of distinguish the difference between religion and what God came for, because religion always focuses on the weakness of man instead of the goodness of God. That's why one of our hearts at our church is, is to really embody Psalm 122 verse one, which is one of my favorite scriptures regarding church that basically says, I was glad when they said, let's go to the house of God. I don't know about you, but that was not my verse growing up. I was mad when mom said it was time to go to church. Church was anything but a celebration. It was mean, it was hard, it was judgmental. I left feeling worse than before I came. We want church to be a celebration. We want it to represent the heart of God. I was glad when they said, let's go to the house of God. And so what I want to do today is really uh, take a different look at Easter than many people would traditionally do on Easter Sunday. Why did Jesus come? Plain and simple, he wanted to rebuild and reconnect a relationship with us and his dad. That's why he came. He wanted you to know his dad. And that's why we always say here that God does not want to be your religion. He wants to be your dad. He doesn't want to be a religion. He wants to be your dad. God is building a family and he desperately wants you to be a part of that family. So much so, that's what the cross is all about. That's how much God wants you to be a part of his family. And so what I want to do today is teach on the heart of a father. Uh, I want to give you a picture of what God, if Jesus died for us to know his dad, then I think one of the greatest stories of Easter is to really get a look at who his dad is. First, let me give you some working definitions for this month, for this series. Religion. Religion is man's way to get to God. Religion is man's way to get to God. And in fact, if you study world religion, all world religion basically has the same strategy. You know, whether it's Judaism or it's Islam or it's Buddhism, they all basically say the same thing. You obey certain commandments, you obey rules, you follow guidelines, you, you follow a certain diet, you, you live a certain way, and you can climb a ladder to God. And you may not all, all get all the way to God, but you can get a little bit higher. And at the end of your life, if you work really, really, really hard, then maybe, just maybe, God will accept you. And that's religion. Jesus is God's way to get to man. Jesus came and said that, that it's not about being good enough. None of us will ever be good enough. It, you can work your entire life and you'll never climb high enough to get to God. So God realized the dilemma and God realized that man will never be perfect. Man will never be good enough. I have to have a way to go to them. And so we're going to look at a very famous passage of Scripture today in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 It's probably one of the most famous chapters in the Bible. We know it as the story of the prodigal son. And in verse 3 it says Jesus tells them this story. And what I want to explain quickly about Luke chapter 15 is this is not three parables. This is one parable. This is one story that Jesus tells with three different illustrations. There's, There's three aspects to one story. And what Jesus is really trying to communicate to us is the heart of the Trinity. Who is God? God is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Luke 15, we have have one story with three illustrations. The first illustration, we call it the story of the good shepherd. There's one lost sheep, and he leaves the 99. Well, who does that illustrate? Jesus, the son. Then we have the story of the widow who searches the house from top to bottom to look for the lost coin. Who does that represent? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit illuminates our heart, illuminates the dark places of our life. And then we see the story of the father and the story of the prodigal son. And the biggest mistake that people make today in our culture is we call this the story of the lost son or the story of the prodigal son. And this is not about the lost son. There's two lost sons in this story, not one. And the biggest mistake is to believe this is the story of the prodigal son. Because it's not about the prodigal son. Jesus is telling a story about two brothers. And both brothers are lost. Both brothers are disconnected from the father. Both of them are lost. And what Jesus is doing is he wants us to compare and contrast these two brothers. And in fact, what Jesus does in this one story is he redefines everything people think about God. Jesus completely shocks the culture and redefines everything people thought they knew about connecting to God. Jesus is basically saying, everything you thought you knew about connecting to God is wrong. So much so that when Christianity first came on the scene, people called it an anti-religion. Why? Why? Because what Christians said about God was so shocking and so far removed from what religion taught that people didn't consider Christianity a religion. In fact, the Romans called Christians atheists for 200 years. 200 years because the Romans said there's no way what they're saying about God can be classified as a religion. And you know what? They were right. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. So we've got the parable of the two lost sons... And it takes place in two acts. Act 1 is the lost younger brother, and Act 2 is the lost older brother. So let's look at Act 1, verse 11. To illustrate the point further, see, that's what I mean. This is one story with three illustrations, not three stories. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now, before you die. And so his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. First off, let me say this is shocking. To the people that heard this, th- this Middle Eastern culture that Jesus is telling the story to, this is absolutely shocking that this younger brother would come to his dad and say, Dad, I want my inheritance now. One scholar said to do this basically is saying, I want you dead. You mean nothing to me. I just want your stuff. I want nothing to do with you. I just want your stuff. And it's shocking that a boy would treat his father this way. It shocked the audience. But you know what was more appalling and more shocking to the people listening to this story? Is the way the father reacts in the second half of the verse. The Bible says the father agreed. You see, a Middle Eastern patriarch would have been expected to drive this boy out of the house to disown him. To, to, to assault him verbally and even physically to throw him out. And this father agrees to divide. And, and we don't understand what this actually means to give him an inheritance. Well, this word wealth in the Greek is the word bios, where we get biology. This is his life. This boy is asking his dad to literally tear his life apart. You see, the father's wealth was wrapped up in his real estate, his assets, his property. For the dad to give this boy an inheritance, he literally had to sell off his possessions. He had to sell off real estate. He had to sell off. And there were two sons, which meant the younger son would have got a third of the inheritance. The older son, two thirds. Because in the culture, the older son always got a double portion. And there's only two sons here. And so the father is literally selling off. What the father is dealing with is rejected love. The most painful thing any of us as human beings can ever go through. Rejected love. To love somebody who's supposed to love us in return and they reject you. People that are... And what we do is we get angry. We retaliate. Why? Because we want to diminish diminish our feelings for the other person so it doesn't hurt as bad. And here is this father being insulted, being despised. His This son is literally saying, you're a dog to me. I just want your stuff. And yet this father... With love and grace agrees to honor the son's request, completely going against culture. And this shocks the people that are listening to it. They'd never seen a father respond like this. So the son wastes everything. He takes the inheritance. He spends it all. And in verse 15, he, he begins to come up with a plan. Verse, actually, verse 17. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home... Even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, "Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, for I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant." What he's doing here is developing a restitution plan. Rabbis taught that if you, you know, did something like this and you were guilty of of, of this type of a. Uh, uh, crime against your family, for lack of better words, that you can make restitution and earn your way back to the family. So he's developing a plan. One, I'm going to repent. Two, dad, make me like a hired servant. Now, let me explain that. Many people think this is a servant or a slave. This is a hired servant. What does that mean? It's a skilled craftsman or tradesman. This is somebody who would have lived in the city and worked on the father's property. They had a trade. He would have been apprentice and learned a trade. Basically, what the son is doing is saying, Dad, make me a hired servant and I'll pay you back everything. I'll work for you. I will earn my way right. I'll work really, really, really hard to earn your acceptance and to earn your way back into the family. And the father sees the boy coming home and does the most shocking thing in the story. Verse 20. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. His son said to him, father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. And I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Here he is about to roll out his restitution plan. And the father interrupts him in verse 22. But his father said to the servants, quick. Bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead, and he's now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And so the party began. Let me let me point out a couple things here. First off, Middle Eastern patriarchs don't run. Children run. It's humiliating to run as a statesman and here in this story the father sees his son far off from home he would have had to pull up his robe he would have had to expose his ankles which would have been embarrassing and humiliating and and the father just lose all abandon he doesn't care what anybody thinks about how foolish he looks and he takes off running towards his son Many theologians say he's acting more like a mother than a father here in this story. And Jesus is painting a picture of a father that the world's never seen before. He runs to his son. He embraces him. He says, bring the finest robe. What does that mean? Well, the finest robe would have belonged to the father. He was the patriarch of the house. The finest robe would have been his personal robe. The son's trying to repent and say he's sorry and roll out his plan and the dad won't hear anything of it. He says, bring me my robe. This son of mine is not going to earn his way back into the family. I'm going to cover him in my robe. He will be covered by me. I will bring him in. He is covered. He is my son. And That is so Beautiful. The dad's saying, you don't have to work your way back into my house. You are my son. I put my robe. I will cover your dirtiness. I will cover your filthiness. I will cover your sin. I will bring you back in my robe. And then the older brother hears about it. We move into act two of the story. And the older brother is particularly upset about the cost. Verse 25, meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. Now, what I love about that right there is the house, the father's house represents what the local church should be today. And here's the older brother outside of the house and he hears music from afar away. So, you know, the dad had the music turned up. They were having a party in there. Church should not be quiet, somber, dead, or lifeless. I don't understand all these churches that, oh, it's just, oh, holy God. I mean, here it is, the, God, God, the dad has the music turned up. I mean, they're throwing a party. That's why church should be a celebration. Church should be life-giving. We have so much to celebrate the goodness of our God. You shouldn't get beat up at church. You should hear about the goodness of God. So powerful here. So here's the music, Verse 26. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Verse 27, your brother is back, he was told. And your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. And the older brother was angry. And he wouldn't go inside, which was incredibly insulting to his father. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved for you look how perverted his relationship is with his dad. I've slaved for you. That's why we tell you every week at our church, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to serve. You don't have to pray. You don't have to give. You don't have to read. You don't have to do. If you have to do it, there's something wrong with your relationship with God. Because this is not a church where we're slaving for God. It's not about slaving for God. The older brother is like, I have all these years I slaved for you. You owe me because I've slaved. No, our relationship, we we read the Bible, we pray, we serve, we give. Why? Because we want to, because we know how good God is. We know how much he loves. It's something we want. It's something we get to do, not something we have to do. We tell you, if you have to do it, you need to step back and reevaluate your relationship with the father. If you feel like you have to do it. His father came out and begged him, all these years I've slaved for you. Never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat. Now, we miss the meaning of this, but in the original language in the Greek, this word you is, is, is a very derogatory uh, of, of reference. He, he's not calling his dad by his title. He's not calling him father. He's totally disrespecting him, and he's basically saying, look, you. Look, you, which is, again, a Middle Eastern patriarch would have been expected to backhand this boy for the way he's disrespecting him. And here the father is and the, 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 the audience that's listening to Jesus. Tell the story is shocked because this boy is being so disrespectful. And yet the dad with love and grace is still going after him. Verse 30. Yet when this son of yours comes back. After squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. Now, what is this calf? We know it's important. Well, if you know, again, Middle Eastern culture, meat was a delicacy. Meat was very rare. You did not have meat often. And this was the fattened calf. This was a calf. They would have been fattened for a particular celebration, a feast, a party. The whole city would have been there. This would have been a a, a really special event. And this kid's upset. He's upset because, because again, it, we don't realize it's costing him. Remember, the father gave the younger brother his inheritance, which means everything the father has left is the older brother's. It's all, it's all the older brother. Everything the father has left is going to go to the older brother. And I love how the father, even though this, young, this older brother is despising his dad and, and, and just just being horrible to his father, his dad still runs after him in grace. Verse 31, his father said to him, Look, dear son. I mean, the dad's calling him, dear son. You have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And then Jesus ends the story abruptly and doesn't tell us what happens. He leaves us with the cliffhanger. What is the older brother going to do? Is the older brother going to respond? Is the older brother going to? We don't know why. Because of the audience of who Jesus is talking to. And Jesus teaches us three things in this story that I want to share with you today. The first thing Jesus does is he redefines our image of God. Jesus redefines God to us. You know, Jesus was the first person to call God Father. All throughout the Old Testament, they called him Lord, they called him Jehovah. Jesus is the first one that addresses God as Father. He's trying to paint a picture of who his dad is to us. And Many of us here today, we, ha- we have a very difficult time with this, this whole patriarchal system of God, because many of us have had earthly fathers that have failed, that have hurt, that have abused, that have done. You know, our image of fathers is harsh, is mean, of we're never good enough. And Jesus is trying to say, listen, I know your dad may have fell short, but my dad is nothing like your dad. I mean, the world has never seen a father that looked like this. Jesus is painting a picture of a dad that these people had never seen before. So full of love, so full of grace, a heart for these two boys that are distressed. Neither one of these boys wanted anything to do with him. They just wanted his stuff. And yet this dad's heart breaks for these boys. And Jesus is saying, listen, I know you may not have a good reference point for father, but you got to understand my dad is nothing like your dad. My father is nothing like your father. And he paints a picture of God that the world had never seen before. And every time in the New Testament, but one time, Jesus addresses God as father. Every time, but once, he addressed God as father. He's trying to paint a picture of a new relationship we can have with God. That God is not this distant being. That's why I say God doesn't want to be your religion. He wants to be your dad. Second thing Jesus does in the story is he redefines our understanding of sin. Jesus redefines sin. You see, in Act 1, we see a traditional picture of sin, which is very easy to understand. I mean, here's a young boy. He's wasting things on drugs, prostitution, alcohol. We, we, we identify with that. We know that. But in Act 2, we see a whole different side of sin. You see, both of these sons are lost. Both brothers are lost. Both are away from from the father we know what the younger brother's sin was what was the older brother's sin see one was very very bad and the other brother was very very good and they're both separated from the father one by being bad one by being good what was his sin his goodness his goodness was a sin jesus is redefining sin for us jesus is showing us it's not about your goodness Here's one brother who's really bad, one brother who's really good. And in the end, what is so shocking about this story is the bad son is now saved in the father's house. And the good son is standing outside the house lost. And the audience would have been shocked by this. And what was even more shocking is is that the good son was lost, but not because he did anything bad. He was lost because of his goodness. It was his goodness that kept him from going in the father's house. What do I mean? He said, father, I've never disobeyed you. And his dad didn't disagree. It was his goodness that kept him from knowing God. And see, Jesus is talking to two groups of people. If you go back to verse one and two, it says tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people and even eating with them. This story is being told the Pharisees. Jesus is trying to paint a picture of how ugly these guys are. You got sinners and you got Pharisees. And now we understand what each brother represents. See, I pastored in Los Angeles for about 16 years before I came to North County. And in Los Angeles, we predominantly dealt with younger brothers. I mean, we dealt with drug addicts. We dealt with alcoholics. We dealt with homeless. We dealt with with street prostitutes. We predominantly worked with people who were... Really, you would classify them as younger brothers. You know their sin. You know their, the, the bad things. The bad things are obvious. They're evident. Well, here in North County, what I've discovered is we predominantly work with older brothers. Because what's the greatest sin of North County? Our goodness. We're so good that we don't need God. We're good people. I don't really need to surrender my whole life to God. I mean, God's got... More important things to do. There's bad people. We moved here so we didn't have to live with the bad people. And the biggest sin of our community is our goodness. See, there's two types of people in the world. You've got your moral conformists who basically believe in moral conformity. I do good and I am good and, and I do good. And then you've got people who are into self-discovery. Who basically says, I'm going to do whatever I want to do and I don't care what anyone thinks. And Jesus is saying, you're both wrong. See, each one thinks they're right, and Jesus is saying, you're wrong. You know, the brother, we see the brothers, and it divides the world into two. You've got one group of people, and they say, well, we're moral, and we're conservative. And the reason America's falling apart is because of those people over there who who, who are bad. And then you've got another group that says, well, we're open-minded, and we're progressive. And the reason America's falling apart is because of those closed-minded bigots over there. And Jesus is saying, you're both wrong. It's not about your goodness. It's not about your badness. Jesus is saying it's the humble that are in and the proud that are out. See, one son tries to control his father by being very, very good. And so he feels like the father owes him. I'm good. God owes me. I read my Bible every day. I go to church every week. I'm good. God owes me. And it's the goodness that keeps him from really understanding God. Flannery O'Connor in her novel, Wise Blood, had a, a really incredible quote. She says, there was a black, worldless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. The way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. See, if I'm really, really good, I really don't need God. And you really won't ever experience God until you're crushed by the weight of your sin. That on your best day, you'll never be good enough. You'll never do good enough. You'll never earn enough. You'll never be good enough. And that's the problem. And the last thing Jesus does for us in the story is he redefines salvation. He redefines God to us. Shows us a picture of this incredible father. Redefines sin. And then he redefines salvation. Jesus is basically saying, listen, you can't divide the world between good people and bad people because everybody falls short. Moral conformity and self-discovery, they both try to control people. So how do we get saved? How do we truly find the Father? Jesus says three things. The first thing is the initiating love of the Father. In this story, we see a father who is despised by an older brother and a younger brother. And yet he's trying to bring both of them into the house. The father is running out to both sons. And remember, Jesus is telling the story to Pharisees, people who are about to kill him and put him on the cross. Why? Because Jesus isn't self-righteous about the self-righteous. Jesus loves the Pharisees. Jesus loves the older brother. He's saying, listen, your goodness isn't going to save you. Please get to know my father. And that's why the gospel is offensive to both the younger brother and the older brother. He loves the Pharisees. The second thing Jesus shows us here, and and if you really want to get saved, is you have to learn how to repent from something besides your sin. Now, don't look at me like you understood what I just said. That'll take a second. You need to learn to repent for something besides your sin. You see, the younger brother has a whole list of stuff to repent from. The older brother doesn't have anything on his list. He said, I never disobeyed you. And the father doesn't disagree. See, it's not that he's, it's not that Pharisees and religious people are perfect. They're not. They sin, but they repent and they, they get it off their list right away. See, what what the difference is, is Christians not just repent of what we've done wrong. Christians also repent for the reasons we did right. See, we don't just repent for the bad things we do. We also have to learn how to repent for the motivation behind the good things that we do. Because we do good to control God. God owes me. And you have to learn how to repent from something other than your sin. And then the last thing you have to understand is you've got to be melted and moved by what it costs to bring you home. That there's a price to bring you home. You say, well, no, the the older, the younger brother was welcomed home. It was free. No, there was a price that had to be paid. The older brother had to pay the price. It wasn't free to bring the younger brother home. A price had to be paid. Somebody has to pay. And what Jesus does in this story is he paints a picture of an ugly older brother because he's trying to show the Pharisees what they look like. He's trying to show these good people what they look like. And this poor kid didn't have a good older brother. What what, would a real older brother would have done? A real older brother would have gone to his father and said, dad. I'll go find my brother and i'll do whatever it takes to bring my brother home i'll go to the end of the world if I, i'll pay any price i will do whatever it takes to bring my brother home that's what a real older brother should have done and this poor kid didn't have a real older brother but the beautiful thing about easter is we do we have an older brother we have an older brother that told his dad dad i'll go And I'll do whatever it takes. And I'll bring them home. And if that means I've got to hang on a cross, I will go and I'll hang on a cross if that's what I have to do to bring them home. And Jesus went to a cross. Why? So that we could get to know his dad. So that we could have a relationship with a father that will run to you. That if you just flinch in the direction of God, God will come running to you. And, And I really prayed, how can I illustrate what this kind of father looks like. And I remember the Barcelona Olympics. There was a runner in the 400 meter race. Nobody remembers who, 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 who won the race, but everybody remembers who finished the race. And I want to show you that story this morning. You know, for so many of us, that's a very difficult video to watch because we've never experienced anything like that on earth. We didn't have a father. My father abandoned me when I was 12 years old. And I struggled with God for many years because everybody told me, God's your father, God's your father. And I said, well, God's a father. I don't want him. I don't want to be a Christian. I I don't want to get hurt again. I don't want to be abandoned again. So I get it. I know there's many of you struggling with this concept of God being father because you've had earthly fathers that were pretty terrible. But as great as Derek's father was, it doesn't even compare to how good God is. And if you would just flinch, God will come running. He'll come running to you. That's the story of Easter, is we had an older brother that did the right thing. We had an older brother that told dad, I'll, I'll go get him, and I'll do whatever it takes and I'll bring him home. And that's the story of Easter. Would you close your eyes with me today? Before we leave, I want to give anybody here that needs an opportunity to come home, to come home. You have a home, whether you've ever experienced or not, you have a home with God and God wants you Desperately. You have a father that will never fail you, that will never betray you, that will never hurt you. And that father is saying, come home, come home. It may be the first time you've ever gone home. Some of you may need to make a first time decision today to get to know God as your father. Not to know the Easter story, not to know the history, not to know about him or who he is, but to know him. To really let him be your dad. And then there's some of you who relate to the younger brother. There was a time you lived in the father's house, but you walked away, you left. And you need to hear God saying to you today, please come home, please come home, please come home. Please come home. So if you're in either one of those categories today, I want to say a prayer with you today. I'm not going to ask you to come forward or stand up or embarrass you in any way. This is a private moment between you and God. So with every eye closed, if you need to join me in that prayer, all I'm going to ask you to do is just raise your hand quickly so that I can see it. And then you can put your hand down so that I can include you in this prayer. So if that's you today, you need to, you're in either one of those categories. Just raise your hand up quickly. Thank Thank you. 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 You can put your hand down. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer. You don't need to say it out loud. God can hear your heart. The first part of the prayer, and I want you to say this in your own words. Just say, God, I want to come home, and I'll do whatever it takes to come home. Just say, God, I want to come home today. In your own words, just say that to God in your heart. The second part of that prayer is to say, God, would you forgive me? None of us are good enough. We all need grace and forgiveness. Would so just say, God, in your own words, forgive me? And then the last part of that prayer is, would you just say thank you? Would you just say thank you to God today? Now you can look up for a moment. If you prayed that prayer, I would encourage you to do one more thing on your own. We have connection cards in your worship guide. There's two boxes here. I'm committing my life to Christ, or I'm renewing my commitment to Christ. If you made one of those decisions today, I would encourage you to check one of those boxes. You can drop it off in a box in the back or give it to one of us. We want to connect with you and really help you walk out the decision you made. Many times when people pray that prayer, the next natural question is, now what? Now what? I prayed the prayer. Now what? We have these Now What books outside at our table. It's a very short book. It'll give you the next steps of what you need to do after making that decision. Please pick one of these up. They're free. And then more important than that, if there's anybody here today that does not have a Bible, we have Bibles for you. There is nothing more powerful than the Word of God. If, if you would allow us, it, 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 would, it would be our, our greatest honor and privilege to be able to give you a Bible today. Outside at our table, We have a, this is not just ink on pages. This book is living. I know it's hard to understand, but read it. It will breathe life into you. This is a living book. We would be so honored if you'd let us give you a Bible today. There's Bibles outside. Please pick. If you're a teenager, we have our youth table outside. We have student Bibles for you. And then we have these Bibles for everybody else. So please pick up a Bible before you leave today if you don't have one. Would you stand with me as we close? Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray, God, that today people will feel and see your heart. That they will understand your goodness at a new degree. That you would just open up our eyes. Take off the blinders so that we can really today see how good and wonderful and amazing you are. That you don't want religion for us. You want a relationship for us. Let us see that today in a powerful way. Bless these people. Let them experience something this Easter and let it be your love in a new way. To let them know how much you love them. How precious they are to you, God. They mean so much to you, God, that you even sacrificed your own son for us. So thank you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks for joining us today.